It's good to see you today. I'm going to ask you, if you will, to please take your Bible and turn with me to Mark chapter 10. We're going to look at verses 17 through 22 together. So when you find that in your sacred scripture, would you stand with me as we read God's word together? This is the word of the Lord, Mark 10, 17. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. May the Lord give blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. It was December the 11th, 1990. Near Calhoun, Tennessee, there was a 99-vehicle collision. It resulted in 12 deaths, 42 injuries, and became the second deadliest vehicular accident in Tennessee history. There's approximately a 10-mile stretch on I-75 between milepost 29 and 39 that's prone to dense fog. This area is about 40 miles northwest of Chattanooga and about 70 miles southwest of Knoxville. If you've ever been to Gatlinburg, you've probably driven this stretch of highway. Because of the rivers and the mountains and the way that they are formed, it can create a tremendous pocket of deep fog. It was around 9 a.m. in the morning, an 18-wheeler, running down the road, began to fear for his life, and he slowed down. The 18-wheeler behind him did not realize that he slowed down, and so he plowed into the first 18-wheeler. They pulled over. There was damage, but no one was injured. A few minutes later, a passenger car, not seeing the two 18-wheelers, slammed into the second truck, and the three vehicles caught on fire. For the next several minutes, a half-mile area was filled with crashes and injuries and deaths. There's a sign now that warns of the fog. It's on this section of highway and in many other areas. It stretches across the road and it reads, Fog Advisory Zone. The first time I saw that sign, I was in the Gatlinburg area. I did not know about the wreck. I did not know about the deaths. I just saw it with my brain and began to laugh. Fog advisory zone. In my mind, there was a 20-something in a backpack and trekking poles who was walking around looking at the mountains, hoping to find advice. 
not what the fog advisory zone is. I don't know if you've ever needed advice, but in our scripture today, there is a young man. He's looking for advice, not from the mountains, but from the one who formed the mountains. He's looking for help from Jesus. Now, the guy in our story is not a college dropout. In fact, he's very successful in life. You can be successful or in any stage of life and be trapped in the fog of life. In this passage today, we see an actual encounter. This is not a parable. This is not a story that Jesus crafted to teach us a lesson. We find it recorded by Matthew and in Mark and in Luke because it deals with an absolutely critical issue that we need to understand. Today, I want you to hear from the mouth of Jesus what it costs to have eternal life and why so many people get caught in the fog of life and they don't make it out. When we're trapped in the fog, we can't see clearly. In the fog, sometimes we say, I couldn't see my hand in front of my face. Sometimes we describe fog as being as thick as pea soup or curdled milk or peanut butter. I must confess that I found curdled milk and peanut butter on the internet. I've never heard anybody say that about fog. Sometimes we're so overconfident in our abilities to function alone in the fog that we seem to do okay. Then sometimes we crash. I'm suggesting today that this rich young ruler, the main character in our story, was trapped in the fog. He had a superficial interest in eternal life. Like so many people who were trapped in the fog, he refused to slow down. He was doing his own thing, possibly while singing, I did it my way. He seemed to be setting a spiritual pace, but in reality, he was a selfish, shallow seeker. Mark tells us that Jesus was taking a trip. Mark says, as he was setting out on a journey. Jesus was on the east side of the Jordan River, down in the southern part. He's headed for Jerusalem for his final trip to Jerusalem. He will die and rise again while he's there. If we were to look at verse 32, we see that they were going on the road to Jerusalem. First they came to Jericho and then up the hill to Jerusalem. So this is toward the end of Jesus' ministry. Next, Mark tells us that a man runs up and kneels before Jesus. This is both unusual and significant. In the King James Version, Matthew sets it up by saying, Behold, which means like, whoa, dude, or wow. You don't expect what's coming next because people in that region really didn't run and kneel to see each other, especially rich young rulers. There's only a couple of times in the New Testament where anyone runs and kneels to Jesus. And yet we find him not only running, but also kneeling. Matthew and Luke tells us that he is a young man and that he is a ruler, which means he's probably the ruler of a synagogue. That would be the only ruler position in that social, religious life of Israel. He wasn't necessarily a scribe or a Pharisee. He was probably a very wealthy layman. 
Young, who had ascended to the leading layperson position in the synagogue, the ruler. This was a position that was usually reserved for an older person, somebody wiser, somebody who had lived longer, typically an elder. This man, this rich young ruler, had achieved much religiously and socially and financially. We know this because the gospel tells us he is the rich, young ruler. And his life is exactly where he wants it to be at this time. He has beaten the curve. He's beaten the trend. He's beaten the odds. He's young. He's wealthy. He owns a lot of property. And he's achieved spiritual respect and spiritual status by being the leader of the synagogue. All this means that people have respect for him. I personally think he is a good moral man. I don't think he gained his wealth by cheating in a, anyone else. I think he's respectable. Uh, I certainly wouldn't classify him as a runner and a kneeler. And I'm pretty sure no one would ever accuse him of being a fog dweller. And yet, in his heart, is this deep fear that he doesn't possess what he needs to possess to have salvation, to have eternal life, to have the hope of heaven. In verse 17, he addresses Jesus as good teacher. He acknowledges Jesus as not only a legitimate teacher, not just a teacher that's not to be rejected, but a good teacher. He uses the Greek word agathos. We get the name Agatha. If you know anybody 80 years old, you may know an Agatha. He could have used the word callow, which means good, good-looking, good in form. But he uses the word agathos, which means good internally. It means good to the core. It means virtuous. It's kind of a deep, inherent goodness. So you might not think that this young man needs a fog advisory zone warning. Because he's commendable. He's eager. He's humble. And on this day, he has a sense of urgency. Good teacher, what shall I do? He says, what shall I do? And I hear, help. I'm in a fog. He has doubt. Matthew 19, 20 reads... That he says to Jesus, what am I lacking? Which is to say, I've climbed the religious ladder. I've made it to the top rung. But what did I leave out? There's a hole in my life. I think he's in the fog of being unsatisfied and unfulfilled. And the fog is really caused by him spending his life focusing on good. We would say he doesn't have a personal relationship with God that leads to eternal life. He comes to Jesus knowing what he wants, deeply feeling what he needs. He's diligently, and he's really not seeking an answer as much as he's seeking affirmation. For Jesus to say, you did it right. He comes respectfully, and he even comes to the right person because who better to give him an answer of how to inherit eternal life but Jesus? We could look ahead to John, 1 John 5.20. It clearly says Jesus is eternal life. So give him credit. He comes to the one who is eternal life 
to ask, how do I take possession of eternal life? That's what he means when he says, inherit. How do I take possession? How do I make eternal life my own? Now, as you look at that, you might say, well, it looks like everything is in place here. What's the problem? Amazingly, I think the problem comes in a place where you wouldn't expect to find it. I think the problem is right there in verse 17, and it's found in that little word, good. The man has spent his life with this motto, focus on good. You know, even today, if there's a word that we don't seem to understand, it's that word, good. Stop somebody on the street and say, are you a good person? And most all of them will say, well, I'm not a bad person. So yeah, I'm a good person. For most people throughout history, we've had a wrong definition of what it means to be good. And, and that's a problem. Here, that's the problem because like the rich young ruler, most of us spend our life focusing on good. For every other religion, good is very important. You get rewarded for doing good works. With God, we understand we can never be good enough. In our text, Jesus even says, no one is good but God. The young man apparently spent most of his life in an attempt to focus on good, only to possess an empty feeling in his heart. He wants to understand eternal life. He wants affirmation that he's doing enough. He wants Jesus to give him an attaboy, a high five, a fist bump. And he wants it so badly, he's willing to even embarrass himself by running and kneeling. We don't see the problem because we too are in a constant challenge to be good. The problem here is the word good. Be honest. When we read the passage, did the word good jump out at you? Or like this guy, have you focused on good for so long you didn't see a problem with it? This guy even uses it really loosely. He doesn't seem to know that Jesus is God. That's why there's no indication that he recognizes the deity of Jesus. If he had recognized the deity of Jesus when Jesus said only God is good, he could have said, of course, only God is good. But as the Son of God, part of the triune God, you are good. That's true, but that's not what he meant. He just knows that Jesus is a teacher that was sent from God. He had heard about what Jesus had done. He knew the reputation of Jesus. Like Nicodemus, he said, you're a teacher sent from God. So therefore, good must apply to him. You got to remember, too, that the rich young ruler also thought he was good. He had kept the commandments. He had worked hard. He had not cheated on anyone. He thinks he's good, and he's asking Jesus just to confirm it. He's loose with the word. And he thinks he's commending Jesus by using that word for him, and that's the problem. If you understand that, that word is the problem then you can begin to understand Jesus' answer. Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. In this room, we understand his initial question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? 
we could have had an answer. If somebody came up to you today and said, how do I get eternal life? You're going to say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ with your heart. Repent, be baptized. Jesus didn't say that. And Jesus didn't say it because it's not true. He didn't say it because there's something else that needs to be confronted here. Faith is definitely essential. Repentance is definitely essential. You know what Jesus should have said. But on this day, in this encounter, with this man, Jesus doesn't say it. But because you know it, because you've said it to others, because you've read the scripture, maybe we should look at what Jesus did say, and then maybe we can guess why he said it. It, it, it looms in the shadow of the encounter. It's right there. It's heavy in the air, but it's never uttered. No word of faith ever appears in this passage. No comment about believing is ever stated because the issue here is sin and the law and repentance first. Our Lord makes this clear in one profound statement. Why do you call me good? Why are you throwing that word around? You don't know me. I'm a I'm a stranger, so why are you calling me good? The rich young ruler uses this word way too casually, you know, like we do. It was a word he would have used concerning himself and most of the people in his world, just like us. And Jesus redefines that word with the next statement. When Jesus says, no one is good except God alone, Jesus tells us what good really means. Does that change your definition? Does it have the same effect on you? Does it deepen that song, he's a good, good father? No one is good except God. That makes God, listen here, that makes good absolute and not relative. There might be relative parts of the word bad you aren't as bad as everyone else I'm not as bad as everyone else (laughs) I'm not as bad as you that's what we think until we know while preparing the sermon I came became aware of my own goodness because by most of your standard I'm a good man but the ugly truth is I'm often trapped in the fog of focusing on good, which I will never attain. When I should be focusing on God so that the goodness of Jesus is what he sees. None of us is good. Only God is good. And only those who recognize that they are not good, then recognize Jesus for who he really is and accept him in faith and repent and follow him Those are the people that inherit or possess eternal life. That's a smashing blow for a rule follower. For those people who focus on good. It means I can never be good enough. It means I can't beat you. It means there is nothing I can do on my own to earn my way to heaven. The issue here is to challenge this sinner's sense of goodness. For this rich young ruler, and for every good person here in this room, 
are watching this recording, Jesus chooses not to talk about the gospel. Jesus chooses not to talk about salvation. Jesus chooses not to talk about the kingdom or mission trips or money giving or feeding the hungry or clothing the naked. He wanted this man and us to understand that he was not good. Neither are we. And that takes the works out of it. Our work should happen because we have a relationship with the one who is good. And because of that, we do things for the kingdom that make us different. The rich young ruler reached, needed Jesus to define good so that he would know where he stood. This man, this young elder who studied the law, who followed it, at least part of it, <laughs> but he didn't understand it. His encounter with Jesus will be written in the New Testament, which he'll never have access to. But he had access to the Old Testament. He should have checked out Psalms. In Psalms it says, there are none righteous, no, not one. There is no one who is good. There are none who seek after God. Our Father in heaven is perfect. He is holy. He is without sin. He is without flaw. He is without error. He is perfect righteousness, perfect holiness, and absolute goodness. And the law was given to reveal that. Instead, this man had taken God's law as a means to establish his own goodness. The purpose of God's law is to reveal the goodness of God, which man could never attain. And I hope you can see and understand the difference, even if the rich young ruler didn't. He had a superficial view of the law. Like all rule followers and legalists and phony religionists, they take what they need and leave the rest, hoping it's enough. His response is consistent with the rest of fallen human nature that thinks they're good and the religious people who think that they're better than everybody else. He's sure that he's good. He had met the law's demands. He's good. And since Jesus was the teacher from God, he's good too. One of Satan's most powerful tools, perhaps his greatest lie, is to convince you that you're good. Satan is okay for you to focus on good. If I were to stand here and try to convince you that we, everyone in here, is wicked, evil, corrupt, no good at all, you wouldn't even believe that because you're here. And some of you worked in the nursery or sang in the choir or worked as a greeter or gave some money. They didn't believe it then. We don't believe it today. People don't believe that. So they go to hell believing that they're good until they believe that they're not. There's no hope for them. And then they realize that there's hope for them. Jesus wants this man to know that he is not good. So Jesus gives him a test. Jesus says, you know the commandments. You shall not murder. You can see the guy shaking his head, right? You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. 
You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. You should honor your father and mother. And he's got this nice little smile on his face. Jesus knew that he knew what was written in the second half of the Ten Commandments. Jesus is saying, so let's just go to the human relationship side of the law first and see how you do with those. Jesus didn't go to the second half because he couldn't remember the first half. Jesus is given the easier part of the test. He says, you know them, and you're supposed to keep them, right? Did you get his response? I've kept all those from my youth up. Wow, that's why you're good. You're good because you've kept the second part of the law. You know what that shows you? Well, it might show you that you understand the surface of the law, but not the depth of the law. Because the law goes so much deeper than the surface. That's why when Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount to these same people, he said, you have heard it said, you have been taught, but I say to you, and Jesus says that, over and over and over. You've been taught that if you don't murder, you're fine. I'm telling you, if you hate someone, you're a murderer in your heart. Jesus said, you've been taught if you don't commit adultery, you're okay. I'm telling you, if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. This man didn't understand the depth of the law. Because if he had understood the depth of the law, he would have known that he'd had hatred. He would have admitted that lustful thoughts were a part of his life. He would have said the desire to steal and covet and lie to his parents and dishonesty were a part of his wretched heart. We have Romans 3.23 to show us we have all sinned. We are not good. His response, I've kept these from my youth up. I want to believe he truly believed that he'd never broken God's law. Up till now, there's hope for me that he is legit. And I think on the surface, he may actually honestly try to make it. But I'm pretty sure, because I read the next few verses, that even as he stood there looking at Jesus... He honestly felt like he had done enough. The truth is, he had broken God's law. The truth is, he was a lawbreaker. And the divine judgment for breaking God's law is death. Eternal separation from God. The very opposite of what he was asking Jesus for. And there's more. He's not only a violator of the second half. He was a flagrant violator of the first half. So you say, well, what's the first half of the law? I bet you know, because you've heard it. You've said it. You memorized it. You probably voted to keep it in the state capitol. You shall have no other gods before me. Make no idols. Don't take my name in vain. Remember the Sabbath. Keep it holy. And you might say, well, wait a minute. I'm sure as a ruler of the synagogue, he was worshiping God. And probably, he didn't take God's name in vain. He must have observed the Sabbath. Surely he put God first in his life. Not really. He's a blasphemer. Jesus went directly to the heart of the matter. Jesus says, you are a totally committed 
to money. If given the chance to choose between God and money, you will choose money. And Jesus had already said you can't serve two masters because you will hate one and love the other. Jesus didn't list the first part of the commandments for him. He just challenged him to prove that God was first in his life. Let's not forget God demands our total allegiance to him only. Deuteronomy 6.5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you cannot love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength and still have idols that you worship in your life. Or take God's wonderful name in vain or not take a day to focus on him. No, the other nine flow from the first. So that leaves us with the question, was this a good man? Or was this a blaspheming hypocrite? Let's remember, this encounter started with the rich young ruler asking Jesus, what must I do? I hope now you're hearing the works part of that question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, you're missing one thing. This is personal. I want to say here that Jesus could have really helped this sermon if he had said, you need to come out of the fog. It's time to stop focusing on good and start focusing on God. In those words, it would have been so cool. But Jesus didn't say that. Instead, Jesus says, go sell all your possessions. Give to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. Mic drop. Jesus nailed it. He knew exactly what this man needed to hear. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, okay, you want works? I'll give you works. Go sell everything that you have and give it to the poor. And then come and follow me every day for the rest of your life. Now we see the truth. The rich young ruler worshipped his stuff. He had a lot of stuff. He went away sad because... He didn't want to give up his stuff. His stuff was his God. His stuff kept him from loving God with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength. Having another God makes you a blasphemer. That's the one thing Jesus asked him to do. Let me have you just do one thing. Get rid of the idol, which is your money and your possessions. You don't get saved by lowering your bank account. You get saved when you get rid of whatever that idol is in your life that you worship first and foremost and embrace God as your object of worship. Getting a bunch of stuff is fun. It's satisfying. And it was the object of the rich young ruler's worship. In fact, the rich young ruler was his own God. This seemed like such a simple story. A man worked hard to do good, to do the right things. He climbed the ladder of success. He probably answered the question, how are you doing today by saying, too blessed to be stressed? And he asked Jesus, what do I need to do to get eternal life? So Jesus would pat him on the back. Instead, Jesus preached the law to him. And Jesus never got to the gospel because the gospel is good news. And you don't get good news until you accept the bad news. And the bad news is the condemnation of the law. So how do you tell a highly respected, revered, honored religious man who sees prosperity 
ask the blessings of a God who is pleased with him, who sees his position in the synagogue as evidence of his spiritual virtue, how do you tell that man that good is not relative, but is absolute? And there is only one God that is good, and it's not you. Several years ago, when my office was at the old campus, my office was right off the sanctuary. One day I was working, and I kept hearing a noise, and I went to investigate, and it was a lady, and she was sitting on a pew, and obviously she had been crying. So I went up and asked, is there any way I can help you? She began to tell me her story. She had always been active in her church. It wasn't our church. She was a member of another church. She had a good marriage. She had a good job. She had good kids. She had a nice house. And basically, life was good until a few weeks ago. It started when her husband came in one evening and said that he didn't think he wanted to be married anymore. But if she wanted him to, he'd stick around until the kids graduated high school. But then he was gone. And then she lost her job. And then her son went to a party at a friend's house. And there was drinking. And the police showed up. And he got arrested for underage drinking. And then there was water in their yard. And the water was a result of roots growing through a pipe. And it was going to cost all this money to get it fixed. And she had lost her job. And she didn't know when her husband was going to leave. And she didn't know how she was going to pay for it. And her life went from good to horrible. I listened to her story. I'm a fixer. I, I wanted to help. What can I do? I'm thinking, well, we raise some money. We get some men to come out. We fix the pipe. And I'm listening. At Sanford, the only counseling class I had was called camp counseling. I was a rec major. In seminary, the only counseling class I had was called biblical counseling. Told you how to take God's word and apply it to problems that people might have. I really wasn't sure what to do, so I improvised. I picked up a Sharpie and I wrote on her hand, F-O-G. And she looked at it and she goes, you're right, I'm stuck in a fog. And I said, no ma'am, you spent your life focusing on good. And good things happening to you meant you had a good life. But you need to change from focusing on good to focus on God. Cry out to him. Read his word. Make your relationship with God the most important aspect of your life. Trust him with everything else. She left. She came back about three or four weeks later. Walked right into the old Church Street campus and knocked on my door. She told me that after she left, she realized that she had never really been a follower of Christ. When she tried to reach out to God every day, she realized there was no relationship there. So she went to her pastor where she repented of her sin, cried out to God, asked him to save her life. Things had gotten a little better, but life was still tough. And then after watching her for another couple of weeks, her husband came in and said, there's something different about you. What happened? And she told him, and they went to see the pastor together. And the husband recognized he had never confessed his sin and repented and asked Christ to come into his life. So he prayed to get saved. And 
she told me the rest of the story. And when she got through, she said, are you, are you going to write fog on my hand again? I said, no, ma'am. Because God has written his name on your heart. In preparation for today, I emailed our staff and our intern, Sam Tatum, and asked, could you send me how a person learns to focus on God? And then I took everybody's answer and compiled them into a list. So I'm going to give you the list. You may have to go back and watch it and write it down because there's not time today. But according to the pastors, First Baptist Church, and Sam the intern, this is what a person needs to do to focus on God. Number one, have a scheduled daily time of scripture reading, worship, prayer, and schedule special times of prayer and fasting as needed. Number two, become an obedient disciple and invest in other disciples through accountability and mentorship. Number three, be involved in mission activity and service to God and others. Number four, Listen and respond to the Holy Spirit. Number five, learn to rebuke Satan and his distractions. I was so happy the word good wasn't in that list. But focus on God is all over it. There's one other, and shared it with the last service, so I might as well tell you. Um, Matt gave an extra, Matt Wright. Actually, he gave four. It's his fifth one. He ran out of things to say. Matt's number five was bring Donnie snacks. I don't know how that helps you in your walk with God, but always in for a snack. This encounter with Jesus could have turned out very different. If the rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, tell me, sir, how do I have eternal life? I'm pretty sure if Jesus had said, pray this prayer and gave him one to pray, he would have prayed it. I'm sure he would have made a decision if Jesus had given him a decision to make. I'm pretty sure he would have agreed to some terms if Jesus had given him some agreeable terms. Jesus didn't give him a prayer. He never asked him to make a decision. He never called for a commitment. Not at all. He stopped him dead in his tracks. He showed him the real problem. And what's kind of funny is his real problem is our real problem. That God hates our sin. And when we focus on good and not focus on God, we've got idols in our life. Jesus knew that when we're left on our own, we just end up in the fog, focusing on good on our best days instead of focusing on God. I can't come by and write on everybody's hand, but I hope you'll hear from my heart that today is a good day to step out of the fog. The fog of focusing on being good and walk in the sunshine as you focus on God and put him first in your life. Let me pray for us. Father God, I thank you for today. Father, I know that parts of this message, part of this text are so hard. Father, we took a word that we use all the time that Jesus redefines as only you are good and nothing other than you measures up to good. And Father, we realize that today we're walking, focusing on good. Father, help us today to cry out to you, to repent, to put you first in our life where you 
demand on being. Help us today to focus on you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.